Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle, and just a quick reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you like what you hear each week, please do go to iTunes and write a review there, telling everybody else why you think this podcast is flipping brilliant. Do. We'd really appreciate it. You can email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast. Now, I hope you're all over the snow and I hope you all had an amazing time uh, with your kids or just with yourself because I think uh, the snow brings the kid out in all of us. Um, I saw people making igloos. I had some excellent snowball fights and um, even though I was working at home because I was sort of snowed in a little bit, uh, I had some really great quality time with my children too. And it was a really incredible uh, few days, but we're back in action now. But the snow has kind of played havoc with um, our schedule and it's meant we hadn't got a show uh, ready for you this morning. So I decided to do something um, kind of unusual in that I decided to make a podcast in my bedroom <laughs> And uh, when I thought about what could I make a podcast about, I just looked around at all my books and all the women writers on my shelves that inspire me and that I've learned so much from. And seeing as it's coming up to International Women's Day on Thursday, I thought, well, I'll read a selection of a few of my books because um, I don't know about you, but in my life, there's been so many women writers who've inspired me, motivated me, um, empowered me in all sorts of ways and I just thought I'd bring you a few of those today. So if you can picture the scene, I'm in my bedroom, uh, I have my new reading glasses on. They say that when you get into your 40s that this reading, that you can't read anymore uh, properly and you know I always poo-pooed those things but it's happened to me and my boyfriend went and bought me two pairs of reading glasses from Tiger. They were four euro each of a fetching green pair and another black pair and now I just have to get over the shame of having to take them out um, in front of people but I'm getting over it but I'm practicing here in my bedroom I have a glass of red wine here beside me too you know just for to keep my vocal cords uh, freshened and uh, I hope you enjoy this I'm going to start off by reading you a piece from a book called Party Animals by Olivia O'Leary and this is from I'm just trying to see the year here it, yeah 2006 so this is a book called Party Animals by Olivia O'Leary and it has really great uh, stories of Irish political life in it um, on everything from you know Charlie, Bertie, Enda, all the guys um, and also on the social issues that were exercising people at that time and she has one piece at the back of the book and it's just called The Ferns Report. Uh, I'm going to start with this. It's not the most cheery thing, but I think it's a good reminder of, of where we used to be and of the role the Catholic Church played and in some cases continues to play on society in Ireland. Of course children were slow to talk about it. They didn't have the language. When I was a child, nobody spoke about sex. Nobody explained the facts of life and you knew not to ask. 
the church and the culture seemed to believe that ignorance equaled innocence. There were body parts whose names were never breathed out loud. Even women who suffered from breast cancer didn't talk about it because you couldn't talk about breasts. The Catholic Church imposed its sternest rules on sexual behaviour and laid a great blanket of silence over the whole subject. A celibate clergy patrolled us all with zeal. I remember the local curate shining his torch diligently up and down the one and six pennies in our makeshift town hall cinema, just in case anyone might steal a kiss. I remember being dressed in a shirt-waister dress on a summer's day and being warned to put a cardigan on and not to be creating scandal by going up the street in my figure. In plays at my convent school, if we had to play men, we had to wear detachable nuns' sleeves peeking below full-length coats because it was immodest for us to wear trousers. When a progressive head nun decided we should wear divided skirts for P.E., Reverend Mother worried that they too were immodest, but she had a heart attack when she saw the rows of shower cubicles in the new sports pavilion because girls might see one another's naked bodies. I never remember those lovely new showers being used all the time I was at school. Everything to do with sex was dirty. Dirty books, dirty writers, dirty films. Purity was the great virtue. There was an Italian saint called Maria Goretti, whose hair grew long to cover her nakedness when she was sexually attacked and who died in defence of her virtue. The church was big on Maria Goretti. The severest punishments were for sexual sins. Women banished from their homes, locked up in Magdalen houses. And I even remember a Catholic bishop in the 80s on radio bemoaning the introduction of the contraception culture because it meant that sinners didn't pay the price, by which he meant pregnancy, of their sin. Oh yes, you had to pay the price of the sin, and sex was the worst sin of all. And yet, faced with the knowledge that its priests had sexually abused little children, had offended to use its own language against all that purity and innocence, the church was silent. I remember interviewing the late Bishop Larry Ryan of Kildare and Lakeland, a gentle and decent man ten years ago, and I asked him why the bishops, like himself, didn't act more decisively to remove offending priests from all contact with children. Did he not realise the effect sexual abuse had on children? It never dawned on anybody that the victim was going to suffer as a result of sexual abuse, he said. One contributing factor may be the fact that the victims didn't say anything. But wouldn't it be obvious that a heinous crime like this would affect a little child, I asked him. It might be, he said. I don't know. Asked about the Brendan Smith case and the failure, even when his superiors were aware of abuse, to remove him from contact with children, the bishop said, I'm not so sure that even the people who recognised he was doing this were aware of the effects it would have on children. I think the indications are it didn't dawn on people that it would have lifelong effects. And this from a church obsessed with sexual sins as the greatest sins of all. This from a church which saw control of its people's sexuality as central to its whole mission. This from a church which insisted that only the celibate, only the purists can wield its power, preside over its rituals. There's only one explanation for this callous disregard of its own laity, this readiness to tolerate the worst sexually perverted crimes by its own priests while it rained fire and brimstone on ordinary healthy sex between consenting adults. 
and that explanation is the belief by an all-male hierarchy that priests are more important than the rest of us, the belief that anything which might damage the power and reputation must be pushed aside, the belief that the church is more important than God's justice. So no one was listening to the little children, even if they had been given the words to describe the horrors of what was done to them. They had no words then. We have no words now. That was from Olivia O'Leary's book, Party Animals. Um, and it's fantastic if you if you can get a copy or if you have one or if someone you know has one. It's a really good in, insight into uh, politics in the last um, couple of decades. And uh, she's a great journalistic hero of mine too. So I'm delighted to read that out. Now, another journalistic hero of mine is Nell McCafferty and it's a book that, again, I'd really recommend. Um, it's called Nell, simply Nell, and it's her, her autobiography. And it's a great big read and it's a brilliant read because it's just totally in her unique, very darkly funny uh, voice that she has. And I had to read this little bit because it starts off when she has to get glasses for reading. So I immediately felt my, my finger fell upon this page and I thought it was fate. I'm going to read this, but it also talks about Mary Robinson. Um, and again, it's a nice flashback to an Ireland in the recent past. So this is an extract from Nell by Nell McCafferty, the wonderful Nell McCafferty. Late in the year, I had to get glasses for reading. Tears sprang into my eyes. The consultant could not understand why I should cry about putting furniture on my face. I've got Elizabeth Taylor eyes, I said. Mine are even more beautiful. There are things men don't understand. It did not help that my afro curls had wilted almost overnight and my hair now had, as Nula sweetly said, silver threads among the weak tea. The first book I read with my glasses on was the Field Day Anthology, a massive compendium of Irish writing and oral history from the beginning of time right up to the present day, edited by Seamus Dean. I went straight to the index to look up my name. Examination of the women's movement in Ireland would be incomplete without my name. I hadn't got a mention. The women's movement had not got a mention. Mary Robinson was inaugurated as President of Ireland on the 3rd of December 1990. During her campaign for the presidency, Robinson had declared that she practised her Catholic religion and now that she was elected, other feminists came out of the closet and acknowledged that they had been quietly having their children baptised. It was sensational. During the two decades we spent fighting them, we had yearned to belong to the institutions of church and state. My cup overflowed when I watched a televised event where President Robinson sat on a chair on an altar and accepted, as head of state, the obeisance of the head of the Irish Catholic Church, Cardinal Cahill Daly. He did not, of course, mention the contraceptive bill she had introduced and he had opposed all those decades ago. I did, chanting at the TV set. Behaviour such as that goes a long way to explaining why the women's movement, in all its myriad manifestations, did not feature too prominently in Robinson's campaign. She had called us to a meeting in her home to discuss how best we might contribute to it. Given her own strict separation of public and private life, this was quite a gesture. Few of us had ever been inside her house before. There were about 30 of us, including Mary Holland, Sylvia Meehan, Mary Maher, Maureen de Burka and Anne O'Donnell, a veritable roll call of the way we were. 
We had not one single practical idea between us, but we knew her lacklustre campaign needed an injection of joie de vivre. She was being controlled by the men in suits. On the way home, there was enthusiastic endorsement of Mary Marr's suggestion that Robinson should appoint Anne O'Donnell as her public relations officer. Anne was the bright-eyed, laughing feminist, all dangly earrings and colourful clothes, who had shown a backbone of steel as director of the Rape Crisis Centre. She was prominently identified with resisting all the efforts of the fundamentalist brigade to slam shut the door on abortion and divorce. The appointment of someone like her would be a subtle signal that Robinson did not object to attempts to prise that door open. Robinson agreed and offered Anne the post. Within 48 hours, the offer was withdrawn. The men, we assumed, had blown their tops. We feminists went into a huff with the nameless men. Worse, we were on the horns of an awful dilemma. Principal dictated that we stand by Anne and sever links with Robinson. It was a rotten situation. A round robin of phone calls led to a painful consensus. We would quietly fade away and hope that nobody would notice that we were not by Robinson's side. I got a phone call from Mary Robinson. She was humble. She was ringing all of us individually, she said, to say she was sorry for hurting us. She accepted full responsibility for the mess. And by the way, she said, it was not men who had advised her to withdraw the offer to Anne O'Donnell. It was her spokeswoman, Bride Rosney, in whose judgment she had total trust. Her courage was disarming. I said I wouldn't say in public what had happened and wished her well. I thought about it afterwards and remembered the meeting that she, Sean McBride and I had addressed in 1971 where I advocated confrontation and barricades and the two lawyers cancelled patience and constitutional struggle. Without her ever declaring her hand on abortion, Robinson had kept students and women's groups out of prison when they fought to distribute abortion information. Rosney was right. Robinson didn't need a Trojan horse. Robinson was the Trojan horse. She wouldn't win the election, of course, but damned if I was going to stand idly by while she lost it. I went down to her campaign headquarters and signed on as a volunteer. As I left the room with an armful of leaflets, Robinson said wryly, Don't make promises I can't keep. Rosney asked me to take part in a photo opportunity in Dublin with actors and writers who had declared support for Robinson. I spoke at a rally for her the night before in Galway and got up early the next morning to find my car trapped in the hotel yard by another car, the driver of which released me after he got up for his leisurely breakfast. I missed the photo call in Dublin, a lovely one which showed Robinson high-stepping arm-in-arm with such characters as world-famous actor Niall Tobin. Of course, had I been in that photo, there would have been no need for people to bite their nails right up to the moment the election result was announced. Bride and Rosney knows her stuff. The morning of Mary Robinson's inauguration, I sat in the house watching her on television, keeping her all to myself. Manoa Heron, she addressed us, women of Ireland. In that instant, I became slightly law-abiding. I love Nell McCafferty and uh, it makes me think of uh, times up on Drumcree Hill when I was reporting in Northern Ireland and she'd be there and I was in awe of her but she was always so generous and so kind with her time and with her wisdom and with her just her general journalistic expertise so very fond of that woman. Some of the best books I have on my shelves are ones that my mother bought me over the years. I think a lot of us are like that. 
you know, the, the women who know us best often are our mothers and she often used to just get me a book for Christmas and she still does that and it's a very nice gift to get. But one book she gave me is a book called Mortification. The subtitle is Writer's Stories of Their Public Shame. It's edited by Robin Robertson and it's <laughs> it's a brilliant book and I think because I used to write the column in the Irish Times and a lot of my columns were about mortification and about uh, saying things that maybe other people would normally leave unsaid. Uh, so anyway, I had great fun reading this book because it made me feel much less alone. And I think we all like to hear stories of other people's mortification because it makes us feel better. There's a couple of really good ones. And this one by Maggie O'Farrell, uh, the brilliant novelist, is, is really great. So I'll just read this one for you now and you'll be able to feel her pain. The room is tiny. There are no windows. And as far as I know, the door may be locked from the outside. On the miniature doll-sized desk in front of me are two pieces of chalk, a roll of gaffer tape and a razor blade. Strange acts have been committed here by extremely small people. A man with a body odour problem has just come in and snapped a pair of excruciatingly tight headphones over my ears. I hate doing live radio. I loathe and detest it. I don't even like talking on the phone, let alone doing an interview down a wire with someone I can't see and have never met. I'm always convinced it will bring out my long dormant stammer. And then there's the horrifying idea that people might be out there listening from their cars, offices and kitchens. None of them, I am sure, will have the slightest interest in anything I have to say. Why have I agreed to this? What conspiracy of decisions or chain of events has brought me here to this Sitting obediently in a head manacle in a broom cupboard, sweating into my beloved best shirt, waiting for a sign from someone or something. A trickle of notes down the line heralds my connection to the distant radio station across the breadth of the country. A soupy jazz record is playing. I strain for the voice of a technician, telling me what's about to happen, but instead, over the tinkly piano, I hear the presenter yell, Who've we got next? There is a pause. A scuffling of papers. I sit up straighter, even though they can't see me, just to be ready. Eh, uh, another voice. Eh, uh, another voice says over more paper scuffling. Maggie O'Farrell. Who? The presenter barks. She's a writer. For fuck's sake, he yells. Who booked her? I've never even heard of her. I stop sitting straighter. Some part of me realises that at this point... I should cough or clear my throat to let them know that I'm here. But the presenter is still shouting. I'm sick of you booking these bloody nobodies. When are you going to get me some proper guests? The headphones are so tight, I feel as though I'm undergoing a cranial lobotomy. I gaze blankly at the razor blade as the presenter harangues the producer for his bad choice in guests, demanding to know what my books are called, what they're about and what on earth I'm going to want to say. And where is she anyway, he snaps. She's in the other studio, the producer says. There is another pause while the jazz record spirals on, the pianist still tinkling away politely. We listen to each other breathing. The producer, poor man, clears his throat. Are you there, Maggie? Yes, I say. Can you hear us? He says weakly. Uh-huh. The record ends. The presenter fills his lungs. 
And now I have a special treat for you all here in the studio to talk about her new book is authoress Mary Farrell. <laughs> I just love it. Um, and her name is Maggie O'Farrell, of course. And uh, I love that story. That's from a book called Mortification, Writer Stories of Their Public Shame. And it's edited by Robin Robertson. One of the best jobs I was ever given um, was to edit uh, a book of Maeve Binchy's journalism. And it was a real pleasure of a job um, because, and again, I, I, it was with my mother. We sat with files and files of, of Maeve's journalism over several decades because um, she started writing in the Irish Times in the 60s and was writing well into the 2000s. Um, and it was just a joy because the woman had this incredible voice, as you all know, and not just obviously for fiction, but just for telling people's stories and making us laugh and those incredible observations. Um, so I feel very lucky to have done that. The book is called Maeve's Times and it's in all good bookshops if you ever feel like a compendium of just brilliant Irish writing. Uh, there's so many of these stories that I could read out to you in this bedroom podcast, but... Um, the one I'm going to read is called Baby Blue and it's from 1971, which is the year I was born. Uh, it appeared in the Irish Times on Christmas Eve 1971. Anyway, it's just a lovely story. And if you ever get a chance to get the book or get it from the library, it's well worth it. It will make you laugh. It will move you. It will make you think and it will rem- make you remember that great, great woman, Maeve Binchy. This is Baby Blue. My first evening dress was baby blue and it had a great panel of blue velvet down the front because my cousin, who actually owned the dress, was six inches thinner everywhere than I was. It had two short puff sleeves and a belt, which it was decided that I should not wear. It was made from some kind of good taffeta and had in its original condition what was known as a good cut. It was borrowed and altered in great haste because a precocious classmate had decided to have a formal party. A formal party meant that the entire class turned up looking idiotic and she had to provide 23 idiotic men as well. I was so excited when the blue evening dress arrived back from the dressmaker. It didn't matter, we all agreed, that the baby blue insect was a totally different colour from the baby blue dress. It gave it contrast and eye appeal, a kind of next-door neighbour said, and we were delighted with it. I telephoned the mother of the cousin and said it was going to be a great success. She was enormously gratified. I got my hair permed on the day of the formal party, which now many years later I can agree was a great mistake. It would have been wiser to have the perm six months previously and to allow it to grow out. However, there is nothing like the aborigine look to give you confidence if you were once a girl with straight hair. And my younger sister, who hadn't recognised me when I came to the door, said that I looked 40 and I thought that was good too. It would have been terrible to look 16, which is what we all were. I had bought new underwear in case the taxi crashed on the way to the formal party and I ended up on the operating table. And I became very angry with another young sister who said I looked better in my blue knickers than I did in the dress. Cheap jealousy, I thought, and with all that puppy fat and navy school knicker plus awful school belted tunic as her only covering, how could she be expected to have any judgment at all? 
Against everyone's advice, I invested in a pair of Diamante earrings, cost one shilling and three pence, old money in Woolworths. They had an inset of baby blue also, and I thought that this was the last word in coordination. I wore them for three days before the event and ignored the fact that great ulcerous sores were forming on my earlobes. Practice, I thought, would solve that. The formal party started at 9pm. I was ready at six and looked so beautiful that I thought it would be unfair to the rest of the girls. How could they compete? The riot of baby blue had descended to the shoes as well, and in those days, shoe dyeing wasn't all it is these days. By 7pm, my legs had turned blue up to the knee. It didn't matter, said my father kindly, unless, of course, they do the can-can these days. Panic set in, and I removed shoes, stockings, and scrubbed my legs to their original purple, and the shoes to their off-white. To hell with coordination, I wasn't going to let people think I'd painted myself with woad. By 8pm, I pitied my drab parents and my pathetic family, who were not glitter and stardust as I was. They were tolerant to the degree of not commenting on my swollen ears, which now couldn't take the diamante clips, and luxuriated with the innovation of sticking plaster painted blue. They told me that I looked lovely, and that I would be the belle of the ball. I knew it already, but it was nice to have it confirmed. There is no use in dwelling on the formal party. Nobody danced with me at all, except in the Paul Jones, and nobody said I looked well. Everyone else had blouses and long skirts, which cost a fraction of what the alterations on my cousin's evening dress had set me back. Everyone else looked normal. I looked like a mad blue balloon. I decided I would burn it that night when I got home in the garden in a bonfire. Then I thought that would wake my parents and make them distressed that I hadn't been the belle of the ball after all. So I set down the road to burn it on the railway bank of Dorky Station. Then I remembered the bylaws and having to walk home in my underwear, which the baby had rightly said looked better than the dress. So I decided to hell with it all. I would just tear it up tomorrow at dawn. But the next day, didn't a boy... A real live boy who had danced with me during one of the Paul Joneses ring up and say that he was giving a formal party next week and would I come? The social world was beginning, I thought, and in the grey light of morning the dress didn't look too bad on the back of the chair. And there wasn't time to get a skirt and blouse and look normal like everyone else and I checked around and not everybody had been invited to his formal party. In fact, only three of us had. So I rang the mother of the cousin again and she was embarrassingly gratified this time and I decided to allow my ears to cure and not wear any earrings and to let the perm grow out and to avoid dyed shoes and a whole winter season of idiotic parties began at which I formally decided I was the belle of the ball even though I hardly got danced with at all and I know I'm a stupid cow but I still have the dress and I'm never going to give it away, set fire to it on the railway bank or use it as a duster. Maeve Binchy and her lovely story, uh, Baby Blue. I love that one. And the book, Maeve's Times, uh, is full of amazing stories like that. What a woman she was. I started in journalism um, in the mid-90s and I started first in a local newspaper and then I, I got a week's work experience in the Sunday Tribune, good old Sunday Tribune, which is gone now. But um, one of the first interviews I got to do in the Sunday Tribune was with a woman a little girl then called Zlata Filipovich. Um, and she had written a diary of her life in Sarajevo during the war. And then she had come as a refugee to Ireland. And I went to interview her. A really, for me, a great encounter just to meet this very special little girl 
who had written this great diary, I suppose inspired by Anne Frank slightly. Zalata has gone on to do great things and make wonderful films. And I just saw this book on my bookshelf as I was looking for for things to read you for this episode. And I thought I'd like to read a small extract of the diary because I think it just makes me think of people, young girls all over the world in various war-torn situations and Syria, especially in other places who are experiencing these kinds of things um, and just how awful it is. But So here's a little extract from Zlata's Diary by Zlata Filipovich. Dear Mimi, Mimi was what she called her diary. Dear Mimi, today was truly, absolutely the worst day ever in Sarajevo. It's Saturday the 2nd of May 1992. The shooting started around noon. Mummy and I moved into the hall. Daddy was in his office under our flat at the time. We told him on the interphone to run quickly to the downstairs lobby where we'd meet him. We had brought Chico, our canary, with us. The gunfire was getting worse and we couldn't get over the wall to the Bobars, so we ran down to our own cellar. The cellar is ugly, dark, smelly. Mummy, who's terrified of mice, had two fears to cope with. The three of us were in the same corner as the other day. We listened to the pounding shells, the shooting, the thunderous noise overhead. We even heard planes. At one moment I realised that this awful cellar was the only place that could save our lives. Suddenly it started to look almost warm and nice. It was the only way we could defend ourselves against all this terrible shooting. We heard glass shattering in our street. Horrible. I put my fingers in my ears to block out the terrible sounds. I was worried about Chico. We had left him behind in the lobby. Would he catch cold there? Would something hit him? I was terribly hungry and thirsty. We had left our half-cooked lunch in the kitchen. When the shooting died down a bit, Daddy ran over to our flat and brought us back some sandwiches. He said he could smell something burning and that the phones weren't working. He brought our TV set down to the cellar. That's when we learned that the main post office near us was on fire and that they had kidnapped our president. At around 8pm we went back up to our flat. Almost every window in our street was broken. Ours were all right, thank God. I saw the post office in flames, a terrible sight. The firefighters battled with the raging fire. Daddy took a few photos of the post office being devoured by the flames. He said they wouldn't come out because I had been fiddling with something on the camera. I was sorry. The whole flat smelled of the burning fire. God, and I used to pass by there every day. It had just been done up. It was huge and beautiful. And now it was being swallowed up by the flames. It was disappearing. That's what this neighbourhood of mine looks like, dear Mimi. I wonder what it's like in other parts of town. I heard on the radio that it was awful around the eternal flame. The place is knee-deep in glass. We're worried about Grandma and Grandad. They live there. Tomorrow, if we can go out, we'll see how they are. A terrible day. This has been the worst, most awful day in my 11-year-old life. I hope it will be the only one. Mummy and Daddy are very edgy. I have to go to bed. Ciao. Slata. I'm going to read you one last thing before the end of this episode and we'll probably be back to normal. I don't think there'll be many more episodes from my bedroom in the future, but, you know, enjoy it while it lasts. And just to let you know, my reading glasses for Euro from Tiger have held up very well and uh, I think I'll probably get used to them after a while. The last piece I wanted to read to you was something from a new book on my shelves um, and it's Almost Love by Louise O'Neill. 
uh, and I'm sure you're all familiar with Louise and you know her work. Uh, I have to say I've been thinking a lot recently about her novel Asking For It which um, just keeps coming back into my mind. It's about Emma O'Donovan, an 18 year old girl who's beautiful, happy and confident and uh, one day she wakes up on the front porch of her house and she can't remember what happened. She doesn't know what how she got there and she doesn't know why she's in pain but everyone else does photographs taken at the party she was at show in explicit detail what happened to emma that night um i'm reading from the blurb here and it says but sometimes people don't want to believe what is right in front of them especially when the truth concerns the town's heroes so like i say i've been thinking about that book asking for it a lot and i was really delighted to get her new book, Almost Love, into my hands. And I want to read you a little bit from that. And I would urge you all to go out and buy it. I'll just read a little bit from the blurb. When Sarah falls for Matthew, she falls hard. So it doesn't matter that he's 20 years older. That he sees her only in secret. That slowly but surely, she's sacrificing everything else in her life to be with him. Sarah's friends are worried. Her father can't understand how she could allow herself to be treated like this and she's on the verge of losing her job but Sarah can't help it. She's addicted to being desired by Matthew and love is supposed to hurt, isn't it? The thing about Louise O'Neill is uh, she just manages to to um, explore in excruciating detail those aspects of ourselves um, as women, not just women, but as men, and those bits we maybe try to hide and the darkest parts of ourselves. It's a dark read, but um, I couldn't stop reading it. The same way I couldn't stop ask, stop reading Asking For It as well. I don't know what it is about her style, but it's just relentless and you want to keep going with it. Um, so I'm just going to read you this little bit uh, at the end of the episode. And um, thank you all for listening. Uh, so this is an extract from Almost Love by Louise O'Neill and it's when uh, Matthew and Sarah have their very first encounter in a hotel room I reapplied my lipstick my hand shaking a little Matthew had sent a message 40 minutes ago to say that he was here I'm in room 63 the text said come straight up don't ask at reception it's better if we keep this between ourselves for the time being where are you? He texted 20 minutes later. I'm running late, I texted back. I'll be there as soon as I can. I wasn't sure why I'd lied. I didn't know why I was standing in the hotel bathroom, staring at my reflection. Why was I there to meet Matthew Brennan, of all people? The strip lighting was harsh, the mirror speckled with black dots, a cheap off-white laminate covering the sink countertop. I had suggested that I meet him at his house, but Matthew said no. I can't ask you to come all the way to Kalini, he said. It's too far. I'll book somewhere near Houston. That'll be easier for you. We arranged to meet at this hotel at 6pm and I hadn't been able to think about anything else for the last two days. Are you listening to me at all, Sarah? My father had said when he rang yesterday to tell me the results of his blood tests. You seem fierce distracted. I'm fine, Dad, I replied. And then today, when I told Mrs Burke that I couldn't stay for the staff meeting, her eyes had narrowed. Are you all right? she asked me. I hope you're not coming down with anything again. Of course not, I replied. I have a dental appointment. I can't reschedule. And I walked out of school, knowing that I should stay. 
I couldn't afford to annoy her, not after the disciplinary meeting, that you've let us down and the pupils deserve more. I'm sorry, I'd said. I'll do better, I'd said. It won't happen again. Matthew texts. Are you still up for this? I don't know. I'd been texting Matthew for a couple of weeks now and every time my phone beeped I felt a rush of excitement. Yesterday he had described in excruciating detail what he wanted to do to me, what he was going to do to every inch of my body and my breath fell short thinking about it. Matthew was older, experienced. He would understand what I needed. I came twice last night, Kara used to tell us at school, after she'd lost her virginity to Owen. Jamesy makes me come so hard that I feel like I'm going to pass out, Ashling would reply, and I would nod, pretending that I felt the same about Tyke Carey, who seemed to think my clitoris and belly button resided in the same area. I could only orgasm when I was alone, on my stomach and breathing into my pillow, so that my father wouldn't hear me. But I couldn't tell Kira and Ashling about that. Girls weren't supposed to do that. I text him. Nearly there. The lift took me to the first floor. The corridor was long and narrow, the carpet fraying at the edges. It smelled musty with a faint hint of chlorine. Room 63. I knocked. Listen, Tony, Matthew said as he opened the door, holding his finger up to his lips to silence me. The room was small. There was a generic print of a Johann Vermeer painting beside a black-framed window on the opposite wall, lace curtains turning the world outside opaque. I don't care what Garrity says. This is a million euro development. Figure it out. I could hear Tony speak, but Matthew cut him off, throwing his phone on the coffee table. A million euro development? Oh, it doesn't matter. Jesus, look at you. He held my face in his hands. He could kill me, I thought, and easily. A snap of the neck and an abandoned body. No one knew that I was here with him in this room, not even Fionn. It's nice to see you too, Brennan, I said. Now that I have you here, I hardly know what to do with you. We could, I began, but he pushed me into the door, the handle pressing into my lower back. He pulled my polar neck off and shoved my skirt down, scooping his hand under my legs and throwing me onto the bed. He unbuttoned his shirt and the flies of his trousers, lips moving down to my stomach. Wait! What? He lifted his head. I don't like that, I said. Legs spread open. Wondering what they're thinking, what they're going to tell their friends. Body tense. Relax, they always say, but I, I can't. He smirked. That's because you've only been with boys until now. No, I'm serious. I really don't. Shh, he said. You'll enjoy it this time. A few minutes later, I was pretending to come, writhing in ecstasy, anything to make it stop. He crawled back up my body and lifted my hips, shoving himself into me before I could tell him that he needed to put on a condom. He felt huge and at this time I gasped for real. He dragged me into a kneeling position and thrust again from behind. You like that, don't you, he said, pushing my body into the headboard. I flipped my hair, looking at him over my shoulder and I told him that I liked it. I told him to do it to me again. I'm close, he said and pulled out. Something hot across my skin. He collapsed on the bed next to me, groaning. Jesus, he kept saying, Jesus, thank you for that, he said to me after a few minutes. What a lovely way to spend an evening. Yeah, I said, but I didn't move. I stared at the velour fabric of the headboard, my fingers resting in one of its diamond-shaped indentations. I listened to my breathing, trying to find my way back into my body. It had all happened so quickly. Are you all right, he asked me. You're very quiet. I'm fine, I hesitated. 
okay, listen, I, I feel awkward even bringing this up and I don't want to be a pain, but have, have you been tested recently? Tested? You know, for STIs. STIs, how are you? He snorted. Listen, the women I sleep with are all clean. The women. The women. Anyway, I hate condoms, he said. You can't feel anything with them on. Yeah, I said, I guess. He stood up, stretching his arms overhead. Are you going already? Yeah, I have to go to Arsenuk Drone for an event to track foreign investment in the property market, he said as he pulled on his shirt. I know that sounds outrageously obnoxious, but this is my world, Sarah. He tied his shoelaces. Feel free to tell me to get lost. I know I'm a nightmare. It's fine, I said, picking up my underwear. I have stuff to do this evening anyway. Like I say, it's a bit of a bleak read, but almost love from Louise O'Neill. I think I think you'll really enjoy it. Um, you'll find it very thought-provoking and interesting. Anyway, that's it from my bedroom episode of this podcast. I'm going to leave you now with a beautiful interpretation of one of my very favourite Dolores O'Riordan songs, Cranberry Songs which is no need to argue. And it's um, it's been done in such a loving way by an amazing artist called Amanda Palmer. So we're going to play you out with a little bit of that. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this. Um, I hope you're all back in action after the snow and that you are looking forward to a really good International Women's Day. We'll be coming from the Little Museum of Dublin for a live podcast from there, uh, talking to women who are making it in very male-dominated fields. I think that's going to be a really interesting podcast hosted by Cathy Sheridan. But that's it for me. I'm Roisin Ingle, and uh, the podcast is produced by me and by Jennifer Ryan. Until next time, here's Amanda Palmer with her very beautiful cover of No Need to Argue by Dolores O'Riordan and the Cranberries. Was it all a waste of time? Cause I knew, I knew I'd lose you.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 